0: Quick disclaimer, some minor pet-related violence toward the end of the episode this week. It's not graphic at all, but it's there. Please see the post on MythPodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a French fairy tale of love, loss, dragons, tiny handsome puppies, cat orchestras, and kings who need to brush their teeth. The creature this week is why you want to train your griffin, but... Not so well that it listens to you without question and tears you to pieces. This is Myths and Legends, episode 316, right meow. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth listening. The story today is a literary fairy tale that comes from the 17th century French writer Marie Catherine de Jumel de Barneville, Baroness Dolnoy, the person who actually coined the phrase fairy tale. We've told a few stories by her, most famously, episode 236, Piece of Cake, which more than a few people have written to us saying it's their favorite episode. We're not really going to go into Madame Delnoy's life, but it's notable in that, after a couple mercurial spouses, later on in life she managed to support herself and her three daughters on her writing. Her stories were told conversationally and informally, like a certain podcast, and they were not specifically for children. Anyway, that's enough backstory. We'll jump into today's story with a queen who wants that fruit tree. queen looked over the wall. Yeah. Those were some pretty epic fruit trees. The guards in attendance with her agreed. Yes. Fruit was sometimes rare at this point in European history. The queen walked up to the castle door herself. Hello. I'm the queen. I would like some of your fruit, please. I'm really pregnant, so you'd be helping out the realm by helping to feed me and the child. She waited ten... 15 seconds? They're all dead inside there, the queen informed her attendants. Scale that wall. The guard looked at the garden wall. Not wanting to question the queen's orders, it wasn't really a scaling situation though. More of a stepping situation. The wall was only three feet high. Cool, then step over it and get the fruit, the queen said. And the guard obliged, or tried to. When he approached the wall... The closer he got, the taller it grew. Standing before it, it was 10 feet straight up. They needed a ladder. 30 feet of ladder, it seemed, wouldn't even reach halfway up. Um, not telling you that this isn't worth it, but there's some magical nonsense going on here, your grace, the guard said. They had already lost like three soldiers, too. Falls from that height? Yeesh. Well, I'm going to die if I don't get that fruit, the queen yelled. The guard said, literally die or... The queen called to the others. Set up the tent. They weren't leaving until they got over that wall. Six weeks later, the queen awoke in her tent. She sat up. Hi. The elderly woman, rocking at the foot of her bed, nodded to her. She was quite obstinate, the queen trying to eat their fruit, the queen narrowed her eyes. It was their fruit, huh? The elderly woman said the queen wouldn't be able to take it, but she could buy it. The queen said anything, any price. She want kingdoms? The queen had so many kingdoms, like five, six kingdoms. What would it take to put this elderly woman in a brand new kingdom today? The woman said she and her sisters already had a castle. What they wanted was a child. The queen felt the baby shift in her abdomen. She said that was too much. The elderly woman rose. She knew it was too much for now. But when the queen decided otherwise, she would lead the woman to the orchard herself and the queen could eat her fill. The elderly woman, as she left the tent, said the girl would be happy If the queen did as she said, she would live with the elderly woman and her sisters until her wedding day, when the queen could see her again. The elderly woman left. After that meeting, though, something changed. The queen began to grow ill. She knew. She knew that somehow they had done this. The sisters. She grew weaker. A fever spiked. And she knew that if she didn't take the deal and eat that fruit... She would perish, and the child with her. You you honestly seem fine, the physician felt her forehead. She said no. This was a magical curse. You're like walking around constantly. I I really think that you're okay, the doctor said. The queen swooned. This was it. This was the end. To save her child, she needed to go to the castle. Before the door, she whispered, She would take the deal as she loaded fruit into the carts. "'Feeling a lot better,' she yelled to the physician. But she shrugged. "'Keeping a kid from evil fairies? How hard could it be?' <music> "'Hey, congrats on the baby,' the mythological dwarf said to the king." Uh, I'm going to be real, no easy way to say this, but, uh, gimme gimme. The king said, absolutely not. He had heard of the deal his wife made, and she was imprisoned in the tower. The king had intercepted the baby, and the baby was surrounded by a guard at all times. Good day, sir. The dwarf said, uh, don't do that. I said good day. The mythological dwarf rolled his eyes. Okay, He was leaving just like the queen made a deal. So when the dragon came, don't complain to them. The king said, a dragon. He was a medieval king. He had so many knights and he wasn't too shabby himself. They'd be fine. Look, bud, I don't have a horse in this race. I don't care. Just letting you know, the dwarf said and left. We'll be fine, the king yelled back. Definitely not more to reassure himself than convince the dwarf. Three weeks later, the king had the baby ready to go. They weren't fine. So many people were dead, and the dragon was just straight poison and teeth. The dwarf said that the fairies would take delivery of the girl on top of a nearby mountain. The king and the queen, he made the queen come along too, trudged their way up the mountain to see the palace with the tower. There, the three fairies sat like queens of the universe, the story says. And the dragon, the poison and teeth one, was there on a diamond chain. The the king knew. The women had wanted the baby the whole time and tempted his wife with the fruit. There was unimaginable power here. And they both had played right into these women's hands. In tears, they surrendered their daughter. Before they left her, they named her Blanchette. The girl grew up in the tower and was educated by her fairy moms. In probably too much of a Disney-like turn, her only friend was a talking parrot. That is, until she saw him. The prince hefted himself over the windowsill and into the room. He and the princess, now a teenager, kissed. All right, babe, time to go. He had been a traveler, lost in the woods beneath her window, and he had called out to her. She was in love with him instantly. Not only because he was marginally attractive, but because he was the only other person than her moms that she had ever seen. But she knew that her fairy caretakers had pledged her to another. So, she and the young man carried on in secret, with the parrot-running messages between them. He would sun himself on a nearby hill, and she would watch him through her telescope, with the bird flying back and forth so they could speak. She was being taught spinning by the fairies, and they were continually dismayed by the mess of the thread she was making, but that was only because she needed to stall for her real work, a rope ladder. One day, it was complete. That night, the prince climbed it, and among other things, they made plans to leave the tower and the fairies. On the evening they were set to leave, He arrived. The princess's husband-to-be in a fiery carriage. It being compulsory really put a damper on the romance, but he was also grotesque and demonic. The princess didn't know what power had been promised to her fairy mothers in exchange for her hand, but it didn't matter. That night, at midnight, her love arrived. She was leaving. She lit the lantern in her tower and eight eyes illuminated in the room behind the young man holding the bag. The prince swept his long, dark hair back and drew his sword, pointing it at the fairy caretakers and their dragon pet. The princess would not remain in the tower. They loved each other, and she was leaving with him. Loved each other, one of the fairies looked at the princess, who nodded back in defiance. Well... That was unfortunate. I told you she was more trouble than she was worth, the fairy said to her sisters. All right. She won. They would take her back. Prince lowered his sword. Wait, take her back? The fairy said yeah. They couldn't marry her off to the demonic king out there after, well, so they would take her home. Prince smiled. It worked. They could be together. Oh, "'Her, not you,' the fairy said, and then turned to the dragon the size of an elephant. "'Kill him!' As the prince's screams were cut short, replaced by the snapping and chewing of the dragon, the princess collapsed on the floor, crying. When she opened her eyes, she was in a strange castle. Two older people were standing in front of her, gagged and bound in chains. "'Princess,' a fairy said, pointing to the middle-aged couple. These are your parents. Say goodbye to your parents. The fairy sisters pointed, and a flash of white, hot light grew from their fingers, consuming all around them. was a very long prologue leading up to the actual story, but that will start right after this. Legends. Oh, my boys! The old king of a completely unrelated kingdom cried out to his sons. The three young men found the room just off the throne room and... Wow, he was looking old. This was late Middle Ages France, so the king was positively ancient, like 45. And today, he looked it. The brothers glanced at each other and then back to the king, who was sitting there, eyes sunken, hair all scraggly, Theoden-like, his skin so desiccated it was almost scaly, Ah, my boys, my boys, I have grown too old. Too old to apply myself to the art of ruling as I once did. There comes a time when the only job of the older generation is to get out of the way of the younger. And that time has come. The princes mostly managed to keep themselves from smiling. Look, they loved daddy. They did. And could they love their dad and also try to violently depose him? Well, no, not actually but people can convince themselves of anything if they want to enough. And these kids, they wanted to be king. The only problem, well, the king had been lucky. So many times kings will do anything for a son. This king had three. The first had been sickly when he was a boy, so they educated the second, and the third was so determined that he learned despite their best efforts. Now the king had an embarrassment of riches. He had three smart, capable, healthy sons who were ready to take over the throne. Very ready. Murderously ready. He didn't know how true the whispers were, but the word coup was thrown around a lot. So that's why he was having this conversation. It was time. Time for him to find... A puppy. The brothers blinked a... Puppy. The king smiled, his yellow-black teeth sucking all the light from the room. Yes, he would retire to the country, but he wanted a companion. He looked to his trusted advisor. Not these sniveling suck-ups and yes-men. He wanted some intelligent, respectable companionship. He wanted a small dog. The brothers said, okay, then, yeah, he should get a dog. But, like, back to the main question, who got the throne? The king grinned, eyes sparkling. Well, that was the fun part. Whoever brought him the best dog would be his heir. The oldest was not cool with this. He thought he had this in the bag, and he would be sending his brothers away forever the following day. But the younger two lauded their father's forward-thinking, progressive nature. Yes, that was amazing. The king could manage to raise his arms enough to clap weakly, Good, good. Well, three votes to one meant, well, democracy wasn't a thing. He was king, so it actually didn't mean anything. They had a year. He clapped again, and Pierre stepped into a nearby room and dragged in three sacks. The king said he didn't know much about traveling and hadn't ever had to carry cash, so he assumed that the most portable version of wealth was sacks full of gold and jewels. The younger two cinched their sacks and threw them over their shoulders but the oldest brother asked, okay, but they have a year to find a dog. The king nodded. That's right. And with that nod, part of his nose just fell off. The prince recoiled. He said, but he could find a dog in the market right now. If you think that dog is the best dog, please go get it, the king said. The eldest son suddenly wasn't sure. That was another thing. What was with this criterion? The best dog? What did that even mean? (laughs) Well, your brothers certainly seem to know, the king pointed to the two young men, who were already halfway out of the room. The eldest, not wanting to be left behind, threw his sack over his back and ran from the room to follow. The king watched them all leave and then waited for Pierre to return. They gone? The advisor said, yep, they all rode from the city. Good, the king said. Rising and stretching, he scraped all the flour and junk off his face and arms and spat his fake black and yellow teeth from his mouth. He popped into some light calisthenics to make up for that half an hour of sitting and patted himself on the back. Then he remembered that he was king. He had a guy for that. As Pierre patted him on the back, Pierre asked, why had the king done all that? He just sent his three sons, his heirs, out into the world for puppies. He must really love dogs." The king said he didn't care about dogs. He cared about not being murdered and deposed. He still had so many good years left. And bringing back a good dog? How much more vague could he get? If the world didn't get those kids, the king could send them on endless quests, while he made sure they didn't consolidate a power base in the kingdom. Pierre arched his eyebrows. That was surprisingly smart. The king was eager to know what was surprising about him being smart. The the advisor chuckled nervously and then went back to giving the king a back rub. Okay, so we're not going to try to murder each other on the road. This contest is weird enough without all of us needing to look over our shoulders. The eldest brother said at a fortress he kept outside of the capital, The middle brother smiled. Sounded like a great idea. He completely agreed to eternal friendship with his brothers. Starting now. He looked behind his brothers to the assassin that approached and gave a little head shake. The man nodded and stowed his dagger. The middle brother smiled and gasped, grabbing the cup the youngest was hoisting and tossing it out the window. Oh, saw a fly land in that wine. Starting now, he whispered under his breath. They all agreed to meet back there in a year to go to their father together so things could be fair and equal. The next morning, each brother left alone, on a horse, having changed his name so that he wouldn't be recognized. The youngest prince looked at the puppy. Well, that was a handsome dog. He had been at it for several months now, and he had found a lot of dogs. He wanted to buy each and every one of them but as he reviewed his list of the dogs he had purchased, he was glad he didn't. The prince placed, no joke, his 40,000th tick mark, the story doesn't name its characters, but it's decided to get extremely specific about this, and bought a new dog from the dog merchant. A dog merchant being a surprisingly booming career field in this kingdom in the past year. The prince let the puppy he had been dragging along with him go, and the merchant chased it down, no doubt to sail to another part of the kingdom and sell it to another brother. The prince inspected the dog. It was a dog. It was a good dog. Few aren't. But he had no idea what his dad was looking for. Like Alice, the prince didn't have a clear destination in mind. So it really didn't matter much where he went. General rule though, even if you don't care where you're going, avoid the dark forest. Especially on a dark and stormy night. Your first thought in the dark forest should be, how do I get out of the dark forest? And to the prince's credit, he realized he was in trouble. So he made for the first light he saw. Not always the best option, but in this case, it worked. He soon found himself standing before a magnificent palace. On its porcelain walls, as expensive as they were impractical, he saw the entire history of fairies studded with red gems. As much as he wanted to stand there and learn about fairies, as we all do, He was being soaked to the bone in a time where that could literally mean death. He made his way to the door where, inspecting the kid's foot attached to the chain of diamonds that led up the wall to ring a bell, he concluded that, yes, this place was fancy. Now, I feel pretty confident in the research for this show, but any way you slice kid's foot on a chain sounds weird. I can't find too much about it and this story was put down to paper in the 1600s. So I take kid's foot to mean goat's foot, rather than the severed foot of a child. This doesn't appear to be that type of dark forest fairy tale castle. Still, both make about the same level of sense to me. So if anyone has any insight into this, I'll update the post on MythPodcast.com with a more detailed explanation than shoulder shrug. I'm then immediately questioning my goat foot hypothesis when, after ringing the bell the prince was met with an array of severed hands, floating in the air holding torches. He rightfully and intelligently turned around, but found more floating severed hands behind him, prodding him in with an oxymoronic, quote, gentle violence. Not wanting the gentle violent to turn violent, violent, he stepped forward into the house. We'll see why, I guess you should enter the house in the dark forest sometimes, but that will, once again, be right after this. As the prince entered the house, he was met with a lot of opulence. I posted a link to the original on the site. But Madame d'Alnoy was a baroness and or countess, writing this in the 1600s when nobles writing for nobles talking about how much it ruled to be a noble would really have had an audience. Some stuff happened in 1700s France, and like heads falling into baskets, that whole talk kind of fell out of vogue. Still, I won't bore you with talking about gates made out of now-endangered coral and entire rooms made out of of mother-of-pearl, but it's on the website. If pre-revolution French opulence is your jam. After passing through 60 rooms full of riches, and yes, being undressed by the, quote, plump hands, the young man was clothed in clothes that would be nice enough for his wedding day. It said that he felt some slight alarm he could not conquer. Which, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably being dressed by the disembodied hands. After that, the hands led him into a hall where, yes, a cat orchestra awaited. Cats sat, some held guitars, some held violins, others just readied their voices. When the hands pulled out an easy chair, the youth took a seat and the orchestra started. And it was exactly how you'd expect dozens of howling cats and even more plain stringed instruments without fingers would sound. The prince went to his happy place and, according to the story, thought about how wonderfully opulent this mansion was. At the conclusion of the show, the orchestra stood and parted a tiny figure strode into the room, wearing a black veil held by a train of cats. Others held rats and mice in cages, and when the attendants lifted the veil, the prince saw, quote, the most beautiful little white cat that there ever was or ever will be. Tomato, our beautiful white cat, would like a word with Madame Dolnoy. I posted a link to a picture of our beautiful boy in the show notes. Anyway... The cat had a youthful and melancholy meow, saying that the son of the king was welcome. The young man complimented her aristocracy game, and the cat batted his compliments away, saying that she was just a plain and simple cat, despite everything to the contrary and talking. They had a fancy feast together, with the prince eating pigeons and the cat eating rats, before a journey to the theater, where they watched 12 cats and monkeys do ballet. And before you think that this is some obvious joke, the story is playing this completely straight. After the show, the prince went to a bed where, looking up at a ceiling of flowers made out of butterfly wings, apparently designed and crafted by a psychopath, he fell asleep. When it comes to staying with magical talking cats who are served almost exclusively by floating severed hands, you don't ask questions. You actually really should ask questions because none of those things are normal in the least. But the prince didn't. He dressed each day for either a fancy day around the castle, or a hunting day. The cat princess, who apparently ran the place, would accompany him each day, no matter where he went. And months passed, where he would listen to her songs and poetry, enjoy her company, and marvel at her many, 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 many pages of extravagant possessions. It was so wonderful that he almost forgot about his dog quest. And yeah, the handsome dog he had been dragging around up to this point pretty much disappeared from the story. I'm hoping it took one look at the cat palace and just noped on out of there and wasn't, like, disappeared by the cat prince's security forces. Regardless, the prince was dogless and 500 leagues away from home, which is about 1,700 miles or 2,700 kilometers. He resigned himself to his fate, the one where his brothers would become king before him, and the cat princess noticed him moping. Maybe he was polite. Maybe he really didn't realize that the talking cat, who conducted a cat orchestra and lived in a porcelain castle, might have a magical solution. The solution was, of course, an acorn and a wooden horse. She was more than happy to help the prince with his problem, and handed him an acorn, saying that there was a tiny dog inside, but no, he couldn't open it or else it would catch its death of cold, which, yeah, If you're a parent and don't want to buy a puppy for your kids because you're going to end up doing all that work anyway, just try this one out. There's a tiny puppy in this acorn that you can never see or else you'll kill it. There was a puppy in there. She wasn't just messing around with him. Just like the wooden horse outside could actually go 140 miles per hour, 225 kilometers per hour, so he could get home in 12 hours before the year deadline. As he boarded the horse, he begged the cat to come with him. She only responded with a deep sigh, pulling the veil over her face. Oh, that's your dog? The brothers looked at the ugly turnspit the youngest prince bought in the castle town. A turnspit was a dog who ran the little treadmill to turn a spit the prince bought it to throw his brothers off, and also because it was hard to explain an acorn puppy. The turnspit dog, who was, quote, so filthy no one could bear the sight of it, didn't know it was ugly, and just happy for some treats, and to go for a ride in the car, or a carriage. The brothers' dogs were so beautiful and delicate, no one could touch them, which is what you want in a dog, and the three entered the king's apartments, who was so happy all his sons were alive and in one piece after going out in the world on their own. Uh, So cool that their quests didn't kill them. The two older princes presented their pups and they were almost equal in beauty and frailty. The youngest shooed the turnspit away, who took the opportunity for some outside time and popped open the acorn. Now, the youngest was the clear winner. Like I said, there actually was a tiny dog in there. Its ears and fur touched the floor, and it was only a little smaller than the acorn in which it lived. Its fur was a thousand colors, and, of course, it danced with castanets. The king bit his lip. Ah, this was such a hard decision. The dogs, ah, they were all pretty much equal. They, they are? All his sons asked in unison. They had good dogs, of course, but I mean... The dog dancing on the pillow was finishing up his tightly choreographed routine. There was literally no comparison. Ah, yeah. Neck and neck. You know what we need? The king pointed. The sons didn't say it, but they already knew. Another quest. Another quest, he grinned. Yeah, this was too close to call. So I require you to take another year to find a piece of cloth so fine, it will pass through the eye of a needle. The brothers had no choice, if they wanted to be king, this was the easiest path, for now. When the prince arrived at his eldest brother's castle outside the city, he found it close to him, they didn't like him pulling the old switcheroo with the tiny dog, he didn't care, he had a better friend now, the youngest prince had the white cat. The cat was happy to see him. She was sitting in her basket and purred when he arrived, rubbing against his leg and jumping onto his lap. He told her about how the dog had been a winner, but now he needed some fine cloth. The white cat said that that was nothing. Her cats could sew, despite, once again, not having fingers. If they had a year, they could make the best cloth imaginable. So, the prince spent a year with the cat. And it was about 18 months into their friendship that the prince realized... Hey, cats aren't usually this smart and conversational. Something was strange here. The cat said yes. Unfortunately, she couldn't tell him. He shrugged. Okay. At the end of the year, he found a beautiful carriage pulled by 12 horses and a bodyguard of a thousand soldiers. It's weird how trivial human life is in some of these stories. Like, servants and soldiers just come out of nowhere to serve people, they have thoughts and ambitions and probably families and stuff, but yeah. She just summoned a thousand humans and there they were. Anyway, she handed the prince a walnut. If he cracked it, he would have all the cloth he needed. The prince looked at the walnut and thanked the cat princess. He was grateful for her help and he cared for her deeply, but not in a weird way because she was still just a cat. The cat Didn't smile, once again, she's a cat. She did say, though, that she was surprised. The prince was a good man. Most princes just want to be loved and never love anyone but themselves. But in caring for the cat, who had put him up for almost two years now in her castle and had given him the means to surpass his brothers without asking anything of him in return, he had shown, apparently, that he was truly a loving and caring person. Despite that being just... The complete lowest expectation. So tiny, so fine, the king sat awestruck. Like Kosher the Deathless, but with fancy items instead of a wizard's soul, inside the walnut was a hazelnut. In the hazelnut was a cherry pit, and in the cherry pit was a kernel and in the kernel a millet seed. And in those, a cloth 400 elves in length, so about 500 yards or half a kilometer. It was like the biggest clown pocket handkerchief trick in history, but dad still wasn't impressed. It did go through the eye of a needle six times over, but dad didn't want to give up his power. Slow clap, the king said as he slow clapped. Well, it looked like they all did it. But those two tests were just warm-ups. Now, it came to the true test. The brothers looked at each other again. What could it be? Fighting a dragon? Conquering their enemy? A wife, the king said. The brothers said, Oh, okay, they were princes. It wouldn't be hard to find someone to marry. Whoever brings back the most beautiful maiden will be crowned on his wedding day. The young men grimaced. What? The youngest said, well, he didn't mean to speak for the others, but this quest felt uh, weird. It, it was, I don't know, a little sexist. The other two brothers agreed. The king said he didn't see how that was the case. Uh, he loved women, and so that's why they would bring back three, and he would scrutinize their physical appearances like they were a dog or a piece of cloth. And I mean, he loved dogs and clothes, too. He, he didn't understand what was the problem here. The brothers said that, well, that's objectified, you know what, never mind. A year? Sure. They were, apparently, according to the story, so well-bred that they didn't raise an issue with their dad. Apparently, being well-bred means completely wasting three years of your life when the king keeps going back on his promises. The other brothers went to go talk to the nearby kings, and I guess made Tinder profiles. Is Tinder still a thing? I don't know. The youngest, though didn't want to go looking for a wife. Not yet, anyway. The whole time he was gone, he only wanted to get back to the castle with the white cat. You must cut off my head, the cat told him on his return. The prince ran his fingers through his long, dark hair and said, What? The little white cat nodded. Yes, if he wanted the crown, he must do it. She had only ever been gracious to him, And now he needed to do the same to her, and cut off her head. He said that this was not a normal ask. In my kingdom, staffed by cats with a talking cat as its cat princess, that's normal? He said, okay, fair, but this was too much. She told him either way, he wouldn't be seeing her again. If he left this time without cutting off her head, she would make sure he never found her castle he could search until he couldn't walk anymore, she would remain hidden. I don't think there's anything in this world that could convince me to cut off my best friend's head. Even if my favorite cat started talking to me and asking me to cut off its head, there are many more questions I would ask a human doctor before following the cat's command to commit violence. Still, the prince could see that the cat really wanted him to cut off her head, and in their years together, She had never asked anything of him. He swallowed hard. All right, he would do it. If this doesn't work, my name was Blanchette, the cat said dramatically. The prince not having any context for this said he hoped it worked, as morbid as that was. The only thing worse than having someone cut off your head was starting but not finishing the job. As macabre as all this is, it went very quickly. The text was apparently tasteful with cat violence. First the head, then the tail, just like she asked. The prince cried through the whole thing. Then, something happened. The feet began twitching, the cat body growing. When the prince returned from the fire, where he tossed the head and tail as ordered, he marveled. The cat's body was four, six times larger than it had been and was still growing. He stepped back from the mass of fur, and then she pulled back the cloak. It was her. You were human the whole time, the prince said, just now catching up to where we've been pretty much, yeah, the whole story. As the cats around her began to twitch and transform, Blanchette told him the story, the story of her mother and the fruit. Of the prince she had loved, the prince he actually looked exactly like. The prince, our current prince, the youngest kid, was sure she loved him for him now, though, right? Not just because she was still hung up on her ex after his violent execution, right? She told him of being dragged back to this castle and forced to watch as her kingdom was transformed into cats. The only way to break the curse was to have someone love her enough to cut off her head and tail you know, that fullest expression of love. The prince said this was the Middle Ages. She probably didn't have to look far for someone willing to kill a cat, but, uh, sure, yeah, happy to? Was that the right thing to say? She said now, if he wanted to, they could marry, but he should know. His dad did not want to give up his power. And she actually had a plan for that. Drink to celebrate the youngest prince's good fortune. The old king bellowed after the youngest prince revealed Blanchette, after a protracted process that involved her coming in a crystal and him introducing a white cat as his bride-to-be and her exploding from that crystal in a grand entrance. It's a whole thing. The servants brought out the wine with three special glasses for his sons, and only his sons to drink from. Blanchette stepped forward. She had a gift for the king. Her parents were behind her. They had a reunion off camera. It was complicated. They were still her parents, but they did give her up to murderous fairies, so they still had some stuff to work through. They didn't, however, want to rule anymore. They wanted to spend time together far, far away from the castle they had been stuck in as cats for years. So they were abdicating in favor of their daughter and her new husband. And they have six kingdoms. If we give the king one and one to each of the older brothers, we can be content with three. That way, no one has to give up their throne. Blanchette turned to her husband and whispered, Don't drink that. Yes, don't drink that, the king said, ordering the servants to bring fresh goblets for the princes, and they all celebrated. So, finally, Blanchette had a kingdom of her own. Three of them was inexplicably free of the fairies, the curse having been broken, though... If you think about it, the initial promise to her parents was upheld. They did get to see her on her wedding day, just with way more death and problems than they probably anticipated. Regardless, despite it being a shockingly low bar, she wasn't a cat anymore, and was in love with a man who hadn't been eaten by a dragon, Blanchette and the prince lived happily ever after. One of the interesting things about Madame D'Alnoy's stories is that you can see her difficult marriages shining through. The couple today had pretty much the opposite of a quick and one-sided political union. The prince and the cat had a long, long time together as completely platonic friends. I mean, she was a cat. And they grew to care for each other deeply before the possibility of marriage was even on the table. Next week, it's the Monkey King. And we see the Monkey King growing up. He learns of a grand destiny to free a bunch of people from slavery. And that, of course, involves him murdering a couple guys and tricking his enemies into drinking his pee. Yeah. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. And on Apple Podcasts now. For less than the price of a chilled whole rabbit from Spain, that you can buy on Amazon for some reason, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of this show that aren't a rabbit corpse that has traveled a quarter of the way around the globe. Check out mythpodcast.com slash membership for more info on the membership, or find it in the Apple Podcasts app. The creature this time is the Adder Luth Gwyn, from Welsh folklore. Now, the Adder Luth Gwyn, like griffins, are a pair of large murder birds. When the warrior King Drudwas married a fairy woman, she had some pets. Some giant flying pets with hooked beaks and razor talons, which could have been challenging, but the Adalutguin apparently loved their new papa. It also helped that they could understand human speech. And so, they all became best friends. But as his friendship with the birds grew, it deteriorated with King Arthur. This version of King Arthur was jealous. not of Druidus' talking griffins, though who wouldn't be jealous, and not because Drudwas was happily married to a fairy woman who wasn't cheating on him. No, because Drudwas... was cool. Or murdery, we don't really know. Contrary to everything I say and do on this podcast, with trying to make these stories relatable from a 21st century perspective, I had a medieval lit professor in college say that if we could talk to someone from early medieval Europe, it would be like trying to talk to a space alien they're so different. So, it's not difficult to believe that Drudwas was popular, but... He could also maybe be a ruthless warlord, who had his eye on the throne. Whatever it was, things broke down to the point that a battle was scheduled. And Druidwas, powerful though he was, wasn't a fool. If you can kill your adversary before the battle, the battle will go a lot better for you. He told his best buds, the Griffins, to just go nuts. The first guy on the battlefield, tear him to pieces, play kickball with his head, jump rope with his guts, no such thing as too gruesome. Turned out that the thing that saved King Arthur, in this instance, and pretty much no other instance, was his own infidelity. Druidwass' own sister was his special friend, and she told Arthur to, I don't know, maybe get lost on the way to the battlefield, and forget to text that he was running late. Arthur did, and he arrived to Wailing. Not really a spoiler that Arthur doesn't die here, since he isn't known for being torn to pieces by griffins. Turned out, armored humans looked the same, And when you circle the battlefield enough times from the sky, you don't remember which side is which. When Druidwas entered the battle, thinking that surely Arthur had to be there and also dead, the Griffins attacked and tore their own papa apart. And when they saw Arthur and realized their mistake, they broke down. Arthur won the day, and his rule was secure. For about ten minutes. Until the next threat from abroad... His own forces, his own friends, or his own family stepped from the shadows. Yeah, Arthur had a really tough life. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Colmes. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.